Welcome once again to On Mike with Jordan Rich. Great to be with you. Our focus is always on those in the creative arts, broadcasting, theater, music. Today's guest is Barry Nolan, a broadcast journalist, winner of multiple Emmys, who hosted Boston's version of Evening Magazine for many years. He appeared as co-host for Paramount's hard copy TV show, was a senior correspondent for Extra, and later worked as host of Nightbeat for Comcast. Barry has literally traveled the world interviewing leaders and luminaries, and recently served as communications director for the Joint Economic Committee of Congress. He and his wife Garland are busy producing cutting-edge documentaries. Barry's also a panelist and has served as host on the long-running, very very exciting NPR quiz show called Says You. I love that show. We'll certainly touch on that. Barry and I have even worked together on stage doing live radio plays. He's a broadcast journalist of the finest order. I don't know where to begin. The quiz show, do we begin with hosting so many great television shows? Well, BZ, where, where, where we had time together. Okay, let's begin there. I just told Barry that 1170 Soldiers Field Road, a very famous address since 1948, is no more, at least for the radio stuff. And they now tell us that TV will be moving out shortly. So how does that make you feel? I feel like ancient because, number one, that was like a a monument on Soldiers Field Road. And number two, uh, TV as it once existed where there were three channels is just, if I were going into this at this time in the world, I would give up immediately because it's bewildering. <laughs> well, radio is the same way. I mean, the the conglomeration and the impact of podcasts, what we're doing right here, and the way it's delivered. You know, television used to be, oh, I have to be home at Sunday night, yeah. or better yet, I'll have to be home at Monday at 7.30 to watch Evening Magazine with Barry Nolan. And now you can watch it whenever you want if you just decide to. It's a great convenience. I uh, taught some at BU, and I'd ask the kids that were majoring in television, uh, how do you consume most of your media? Mm -hmm. And almost all of them would tell you that they consume it on something portable. They look at their iPad, their phone, and the number of shows that people watch that are young, that they watch all when it's live coming off, you know, over-the-air TV Mm. is really tiny. Mm -hmm. And the thing that really amazes me is that one of the – things that they say they do watch live kind of all together is The Bachelorette. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, It used to be the Jersey Shore. Yeah, you're right. Things like that that sort of catch on for some reason. Uh, Maybe a Red Sox game, maybe a a, a sporting event, but that's about it. You're right. Absolutely. So there's so much I want to talk to you about. First of all, uh, Congratulations on a remarkable career that has spanned not just radio and television, but also politics. Let's start with that. You've been involved with politics and actually worked in Washington, what, on the Senate side? I I ended up getting a job that was uh, technically I was a staffer for the U.S. Senate uh, on the uh, staff of the Joint Economic Committee, which is a House Senate committee. And what they – surprisingly, one of the things they needed – because they have all these brainiacs, all these economists that are real nerds. And it, people that are really involved in that, which is painfully complicated, have a tendency to want to speak like Alan Greenspan, <laughs> yes. which is painful to listen to. Mm-hmm. You know, when you when you hear when you used to hear him on the news every once in a while, you you would just think, what is he talking about? And paint would dry at yeah. that moment, yes. So one of the needs they really have is people like you, 
that have had a lifetime of taking complicated things and you but you only have 15 seconds to explain it mm-hmm. and you reduce it into a way that said if you do that that will mean everybody including you will lose their jobs <laughs> so you shouldn't do it so was this something that you had to do as a sort of public spokesperson on television on radio clips on press junkets or was it more internal sort of oh it was internal one okay. of the things i would do is help prepare uh, speeches and uh, opening remarks and remarks to at events for my supervising member of Congress, who was uh, New York's Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. Mm-hmm. So you and I started doing this in 2009 as the economy was collapsing. You know, it, people would. One of the interesting things people don't appreciate from back in those days was that they nobody understood then how close we were to a total catastrophe, a mm-hmm. meltdown, a place where the the banks, at least on paper, were insolvent. So the banks would have to close. And if one bank closed, that would make another bank insolvent because they were holding debt from that bank. And it would cause this domino effect of all these banks closing, and there wouldn't be enough of the federal people that go out and res- do resolution and mm. get banks open again the next Monday. And there would have been, just like back in the 30s, they would have had to declare what they uh, euphemistically called a bank holiday, right, which right. would have meant to people like you, you, you had no more access to your checking account, to your savings account, to money in the ATM, your credit card would stop working. Mm. And so the only money you would have was be the money that you had in your pocket and in the change jar at home. And when you ran out of that, you'd have to you'd have to barter. You know, you'd have to do a podcast for a dinner. (laughs) So we we came really close to that event, but they couldn't say that to people. Mm. They couldn't say, oh, my God, we're almost all going to die because that would have made it worse. It would have caused even bigger bank panic. We had bank panics as it was. You know, they they had what they called busting the buck. The money market accounts didn't give you a dollar back for every dollar you put in it for some of them. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't come out and say, we're so close, just keep your fingers crossed, because it would have created that panic that would have exas- would have thrown gasoline on that fire. So people, when they look back on it, don't remember quite how bad it was. No, you're absolutely right, Barry. People think, oh, 2009, the real estate market died. I couldn't get the money I wanted from my house. And there was something going on in Washington with big banks and a bailout. But you're right. This was a a very critical time in American history that could have gone the wrong way. I mean, it barely went the right way. One of the things that happened, you know, people hated the bank bailouts. But one of the things that happened back then was most businesses have to do uh, short-term loans because money comes in when it comes in for some businesses, but you have to pay your rent and you have to pay your employees and you have to pay your vendors and you have to pay your electricity every month. So all kinds of businesses, including huge ones like GE, need to do overnight loans from banks. Well, that kind of lending almost dried up. So all kinds of businesses, if it had really gone south. What a ripple effect that would have had. Yeah. They would have just, they wouldn't have been able to pay anybody and just sort of shut the doors. So that's the political uh, little slice of what you did in Washington. And it sounds pretty exciting, actually. Um, But that's only a small part of who you are. And 
your resume reads, well, let's just put it this way. It's multiple, multiple pages of accomplishments in broadcasting. What was the first gig? Do you remember? I, I was at the University of Tennessee, and uh, I was in majoring in theater. And this crazy guy, Ralph Allen, who was the uh, head of the department, came home one day with a grant from the National Endowment to start a uh, theater company. And he had talked Sir Anthony Quayle into being the artistic director. Famous British actor. Great British actor. And I got my uh, equity card uh, in Actors Equity playing uh, woefully miscast as strength opposite Sir Anthony Quayle as every man in the uh, 15th century morality play. And you had to literally act opposite one of the greatest actors on the not just the American, any, the world stage, a European, tra- a, a Shakespearean trained actor. He, w- he was one of the only people in uh, modern times to do a um, to do a reasonably successful production of Titus Andronicus on the professional English and American stage. That's how good he was. And he was often seen in those biblical epic movies, you know, with a toga. He was great. Uh, The broadcasting career uh, is so extensive. I mentioned Evening Magazine. We talked about WBZ locally. But you then went on to do a lot of national television, a lot of national magazine shows and hosting uh, shows. Uh, Run run them down for us. I I was at Evening Magazine and... Uh, I got a call out of the blue to do a uh, a pilot for ABC called Over the Edge. And it was a reality show back when they were really just sort of getting started with reality programs. And it was a primetime thing. So I did that. And then they called me back and we did two more that were primetime. And I thought, oh, so my contract's coming up at uh, ending here at BZ. I'm going to uh, say thanks, but it's been a great run. The conventional wisdom is that ABC is going to put uh, over the edge on their schedule Mm. for next year, and I'll have a great job on primetime network television. So I thanked everybody. We had a goodbye party, and I had a cake. And then ABC announced their schedule, and we weren't on it. Oh, boy. And I didn't have a plan B. So um, I ended up uh, spending a year doing a show on Fox for Beyond Tomorrow, which looked at gee whiz gadgets and you know, Fox network and right. things that were sort of pro environment back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, then that show went away because um, a little cartoon that they used to do for the Tracy Ullman yeah, show. Yeah, let's see. They all have three fingers. So it would be The Simpsons, I'm, the I'm Sim- guessing. So I had to tell my son that uh, we weren't going to Disney World this year. <laughs> Because Homer Simpson is getting daddy's check. Isn't that the way of this business no. that, that we all love so much and that drives us crazy? I mean, it's it's literally luck of the draw sometimes. Yeah. And, and what happens on the other side of the fence that affects you? There's no way that cartoon should have worked. No, no, absolutely not. And by the way, the first year was not as funny as all the rest. But that's neither here nor <laughs> Thank there. You. Thank you for that. But, you know, having done so much television and so much presenting and you're such a a perfect host on TV and on radio. Um, what's different about today? What, what When you look at TV, if you get a chance to watch any show that's like the shows you did, if there are any, what's different? We went to see this woman uh, whose name I can't remember uh, do a, a presentation over at uh, uh, the uh, Jewish uh, uh, cultural society presentations that Francine Akbar from BZ used to do. Okay. And she spoke about her study about what 
TV shows at different eras in TV history had in common. And she found that there were decades where, you know, back in the, uh, when we were very young watching Ozzie and Harriet, people wanted a sense of normality and normal life up there. And then uh, a decade later, as the um, Vietnam War began to heat up, people wanted a bit of rebellion. Mm. And then they wanted fantasy in the next decade. Finally, when we got to the beginning of 2000, the thing that people were just kind of in a grouchy mood, and the thing they wanted to see or experience was judgment. That's when Housewives of New Jersey kind yeah. of became popular. <laughs> yes. And people would look at these people and go, I can't believe those people. What morons. The reality explosion. And so people wanted like Simon on uh, American Idol. They mm. wanted somebody that would be insulting and be judgmental. And I'm glad that uh, my time came and went before you really had to do that because that's uh, – There's a coarseness uh, everywhere in society from the top down. We know that. But, I mean, it, it's pervaded itself through television and radio and, and all the media that we have. It's really amazing how – uh, the, the elegance and the class that we used to think was a necessity to do the jobs we do is kind of out the window now. It's it's shock value. Well, we we shouldn't paint uh, what we used to do with with too uh, glossy a picture because you know we had remember uh, Milton Berle was hugely popular because in part because he used to dress in drag That's and true. be ridiculous. That's true. And uh, Red Skelton was ridiculous. People, you know, they loved being ridiculous. And I don't mean to suggest that I'm, uh, you know, the embodiment of all Christian values and I'm never judgmental on Facebook. I'm, I'm a jerk. <laughs> um, but it's what they want in programming and what they want in content now is uh, I don't think I'd be good at it. You are very good as a panelist on a game show that I've listened to over the years, and it blows my mind that you are so aware of things that are so esoteric in terms of the questions. Let's talk about that show. Uh, you're talking about Says You on mm -hmm. uh, public radio, and that was a creation of a BZ alum, uh, the great Richard Schur. Who passed away, unfortunately. Who passed away and came to a bunch of his old buddies from BZ and said he was going to do a radio pilot. And, you know, you just need to – you don't need to prepare for it. Just show up. And uh, we did this pilot, and we – none of us thought, well, that's, that was a nice afternoon, and we'll mm. see you again mm. whenever. But uh, the show's been going on for 22 years. Wow. And how long have you been doing it? 22 years. The whole run. Well, there were times when I couldn't come right. back. I was out in Los right. Angeles. Uh, I remember hearing Tony Khan uh, over the years. Yeah. and uh, Tony's great. Some wonderfully – to, not just smart individuals, but glib. And that's what I love about the show, the, the one-liners. And they're intelligent one-liners. Uh, one of the people that uh, is also from BZ, from uh, Boston Television, Arnie Reisman, I think is a great example oh, yeah. of what really works well on the show. Arnie was one of the writers of Park Street Under. Oh, so God, I remember that. Got that comic sense. But he also did all these documentaries over the years. And so he would. He has all this and knowledge that he got from doing these documentaries, like all the people who have walked on the moon, you know, or all the presidents. So you can ask these these really abstruse questions. And Arnie, one of the ones he got that really amazed me was 
one of the categories is odd man out. Okay. So they give you a category of the, here's like four things. Three of them have something very particular in common. What doesn't belong and why, as Arnie right. used to say. And so the one that Arnie got was, uh, what's the odd man out? Philip of Macedonia, Hamlet, <laughs> Long John Silver, and George Washington. Five points for knowing which one, five uh, points for knowing why. I'll just shoot out one guess, Hamlet. That's my guess. I'm that probably was wrong. Good guess because he's fictional, but no, the okay. uh, the, the oh yeah, actually, excuse me, you're right. I'm sorry. Oh, you, I you were absolutely right. I almost did a spit now, take. Now five points for knowing why. Well, I thought fictional was was the issue. No, but that's not it. So uh, is it because he's a Dane? No, no. Good guess. Uh, something to do with his familial background, perhaps? No, no. All right. I'll, I'll see to the master. Arnie figured this out because somehow he remembered that Philip of Macedonia, the father of Alexander the Great, had at one time taken an arrow in the eye at a siege and had replaced it with a prosthetic wooden eye. Ah, uh, here we go. So Philip had the wooden eye. George Washington had the wooden teeth. Who was the third? Long one? John Silver. Had the wooden leg. <laughs> Wow. But, you know, I've listened to the show so many times, and it's it's truly amazing how fast on the draw you have to be. And and you can relate this to our audience because you're a trustworthy guy. It's no Googling. There's no, oh, no. cheating. There's no advanced questions and all oh, that kind no. of stuff. No. And yeah. one of the categories that always intrigued me is uh, the definitions of words I've never heard of. And you try to figure out what the word means based on. Well, th there's a there's a bluffing round. Where Richard would find all these words nobody, as you say, nobody's ever heard of, but are real words. Real words. So the there's three panelists, and each one gets a, a card, but only one gets a card with the real definition. The other two cards say, make something up. So the what's hard is to make a good bluff that's also funny, mm. if you can make it. Mm -hmm. Or what's even harder sometimes is when you get the real word and you want to throw the other people off. That my One that I can remember, I must I forget immediately, but I got the card once that was the word was used to see. And the real definition was worldwide change in sea level. Used to see. Okay. Used to see. So when it came to me, they said, what does used to see mean? I said, used to see. Worldwide change in sea level, to use it correctly in a sentence, back in the Pleistocene era, if you stood on this ridge, you used to see water. <laughs> Sounds like a, a, a very Jordan Rich style yes. directional yes, pun is. that I would have taken. You know, it's, it's interesting. That show reminds me of... You'd be great. The uh, Well, I don't know about... Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a Mensa guy, but I would have fun bluffing, I can tell you that. There, you, you'd be great. You remember Bennett Surf and people oh, of that yeah. ilk. I mean, and again, I hate to sound like an old fuddy-duddy, but some of the old Algonquin roundtable kind of people, I mean, it. I think there's still a place for that. Thank God for public radio. Still a place for that, that intelligent humor uh, were challenged not by something so urbane and silly, but by something really kind of intellectual. And you guys make it so much fun. One of the things that I'm sorry Richard never got around to doing that we talked about sometimes was making a version of the show for kids because kids love the bluffing round. They mm. really think that's fun. Mm -hmm. And 
exposing them. And I really am amazed that sometimes when we do the show in different cities and lots of people bring their kids, it's wonderful to see it because getting kids to really enjoy the flavor of words and have a take real pleasure and mm. the English language or their whatever their language may be is a great gift to give to children. Sure, and sure, I, I wish there were more of it. Let's talk about film and filmmaking. You and your wife, Garland, yes. are doing documentary work. You did one in 2012. I saw the trailer. It looked fascinating about a mom trying to rescue her own children. And you're working on another one now. Is this a joy now that you're uh, freer in terms of the time you have? It's. I love being retired and don't understand how I ever had time to have a job. Uh, but there's... There's a time in making a film, and I'm at it right now, where you're uh, dealing with the daily mm. editing, getting close to the end. And I remember when uh, I, I did a, an interview years ago when I was working for Extra with uh, George Lucas. Mm -hmm. And I asked him, uh, he was famously the sort of guy that was constantly going back and retweaking things and you know, changing, making last-minute changes to the edits that he'd made as last-minute changes. And I asked him, well, how do you know when a film is finally done? Mm. And he goes, oh, a film is never done. A film is just abandoned. <laughs> you know, you have to stop doing it because right. it's got a premiere someplace. You got to move on. You got to yeah. get that movie on the screen. That's very interesting. Um, you, you keep talking about the fact that, you know, now you have more time to do things like this. There are times in our business when we're asked not to show up anymore. And I have to ask you about... A dramatic oh, incident yeah, that occurred. Sure. I'm sure you're you're happy to talk about it. I, I should guess you would be because yeah. it's, it's kind of an interesting high watermark now that we look back. You had uh, an incident in here in New England, and it involved Bill a certain, a certain uh, ex Fox yeah. uh, person, and you were a little ahead of the curve on that. I was I was uh, producing a show for Comcast. Uh, that had started out being uh, Nightbeat, and then he asked me to change it to a all-entertainment show, and it was called Backstage. And we had fun doing yeah, it. Yeah, I remember it. And one, there came a time when I, we were doing the submissions for Emmys, and uh, I was doing stuff to put our show in like all the other TV stations do. And it came to my attention just accidentally that one of the employees said, you know, Bill O'Reilly – is going to be getting the Governor's Award, I said, the, which is the their big cheese, the, the, the like big the enchilada. Like the Herschelt Award in the Oscars. Yeah. And in the past, they'd, they'd given it to people like Ken Burns and uh, uh, George uh, 60 Minutes, uh, uh, this, this Mike the, Wallace. This is yeah. the New England yeah. Emmys that we're talking the about. New England right? Emmys. So it's a big deal. And uh, I thought I knew O'Reilly, and I and I basically I'd uh, had sort of been familiar with the uh, the sex harassment thing against him because I was in New York at the same time, and I knew that he was a bloviator and a bully and a liar. And I thought this is just wrong. This is this is telling students at Emerson and BU this is where to set the bar mm -hmm. for your career in television by giving mm -hmm. a man like this. The, the governor's award. So I, I wrote a note to them, nice, polite note, saying, I heard this rumor and I, I hope I'm just wasting your time and it's not true. And then I found out that it was true. 
So I wrote a much longer, more serious note, and I pointed out to people that you will be giving at, a, at an event which mostly recognizes the free press, because most of a television's operation in those days was devoted to news. Mm -hmm. You will be in a room full of people devoted to a free and open press, will be rewarding a man who once said in, uh, in the lead up to the Iraq war that federal authorities should be sent over to Air America and those people should be taken away in chains hmm. because criticizing the war, that's one thing, but undermining the effort, that's treason. And this is a man that we will be awarding, you know, in a room that's celebrating the best practices of a free press. And I went on for hours after right, that. Right, right. And at one point, uh, the word somehow got to our friends at the Herald, and they called up. And I should have had, I suppose, better sense, but they said, we understand that you think O'Reilly should not get the award. And I went on. Sure. As I Door open, you you Yeah, they, you asked, yeah. you know. So uh, one thing after the, came to another, and um, uh, it, the thing I didn't know was at that very time, Comcast was negotiating with Fox Network uh. for their must-carry rates. You know, the, the uh, cable people have to pay outfits like Fox to carry their local television right. and their national television. And they didn't want me to say a word. They didn't want me to say anything bad about anything to do with Fox. And I, Comcast was also the people that were carrying the award show live. So I think they sort of perhaps may have had a finger in setting up the award for O'Reilly. So uh, what it came down to is I got fired. Yeah. It, I got fired for supporting a free press at an event, celebrating the free press at an event where I was up for an Emmy Award for commentary. And you should be getting an award from, if they have an award ceremony, from the Me Too movement, because you were years ahead. I mean, and, we, and it's interesting because a lot of people knew about O'Reilly and his ways, as they probably knew about certainly Harvey Weinstein and so many of these other guys who, and people who were doing things in in the business. I, I will... One of the things, I, I will tell you this story, if you promise, uh, to tell everybody you know. Of course. Um, Do it here. Why all not? right. One of the things that, <clears throat> that made the allegations against a rally so credible to me was years before, I had been living in New York, and I was, uh, at that time, dating a flight attendant. Mm -hmm. And she told me a story one day, years before any of this happened. Uh, about how she had she used to room with a flight attendant who had a habit of dating sort of famous people. And at one time, found herself dating O'Reilly. And uh, she was, that was okay until she, there came a time when she got what she assumed was O'Reilly's idea of a phone sex call, in which he described himself to her being naked in front of the mirror and I will spare your audience the details. He was carrying on. Okay. And that was it for her. Mm. So I heard this story and I didn't many think anything of it. And then later, you can look up on the smoking gun. You can still find some of the allegations against O'Reilly, which sound oddly similar to this. Yeah, yeah. there's patterns there that 
that were started a well, well, well long time ago. So that, because it was totally unrelated and the two people could not have known each other, the mm-hmm. woman that made those allegations you can find on the smoking gun, go look it up. Uh, and, uh, the you know, allegations my girlfriend's roommate had made. Yeah. That made me give great credibility to that. I thought, this is just not a guy. Well, I give you credit because you sacrificed your career at your job at that time, but you stood for your principles and uh, look who's getting the last laugh (laughs) in a way. I mean, that whole story. I mean, and I I knew enough about this guy just from what I read in the papers and, and just his manner on TV, you know, that sense of I'm commanding and bullying and you're going to listen to me. Well, he also he worked in Boston for a while. He did. That's right. And because I worked in Boston, too, from time to time, people were over the years. would Oh, you're a Boston guy. Let me tell you a story. And it would be a story that involved O'Reilly. And they were never flattering stories. You know, they were always he's a jerk. I want to end with a more upbeat, positive. Sure. (laughs) Spin. And I shouldn't have said spin with O'Reilly. I'm sorry. sorry It's all right. I want to close by having you comment on what you think your legacy is in this business, because I believe you've led the way as a quality broadcaster nationally and locally. And I I go back to the game show, which is so entertaining. And uh, you're a good storyteller. Now, I'm putting words in your mouth, maybe. But how would you say this career has shaped you and how you've been able to sort of leave that legacy? What does it mean? The the career shaped me far more than I any impact I had on any aspect of television in that it gave me a reason, it gave me the orders to go out and talk to people like Ricky Hoyt, mm. you know, the, the young man whose father pushes him uh. in the wheelchair in the Boston Marathon and did for 30 years until they recently retired. And it helped people see folks like the Hoyt as the heroes in our community that Mm. they really are. Mm. And being around them and seeing their life and the authenticity of who they are made me a better person for it. You know, that's so interesting you say that because I often think the same, that we're honored to be able to interview or tell the story of or share conversation with people who are truly saints and truly heroes. Politicians come and go, uh, sports figures come and go, but I think it's the everyday people sometimes that you meet that are really remarkable. I was in uh, the airport in Washington and ran into Charlie Fisk, who uh, I had met doing one of those stories a hundred years ago, whose daughter, Jamie, was all over the Boston media for a while because she was very young and desperately needed a liver transplant. Oh, right. I remember that. And the the rules back at the time made young people have to be on a a waiting list that was only for young people's livers. Mm. And it came around. They were were available so seldom that it was like a death sentence. And Charlie was out there trying to get the rules changed and trying to make people more aware of the, you know, the the great need for uh, organ donors. And Jamie got the got the liver in part because there was so much media coverage of this issue. And I saw him in the airport 
And I said, how's Jamie doing? He says, oh, she's great. She's a mom. She's 30-something years wow. old. And she's the longest living recipient of a liver donation in the country. And you just think, you know, sometimes the press is not the enemy of the people. <laughs> touche, touche. Barry, uh, congratulations on what you're doing now, the well, films that we'll be watching. What's your uh, web address? What's the best way to find you online? The best way, I, I have a Facebook page, Barry Nolan. Barry Nolan on Facebook. Yeah. You said you were a jerk, so that's just yes, a, I am. a preamble. Right. When you go there, pardon him for being jerky. Yes, I am. All right, everybody has a little fun on Facebook. Why not? It's great to sit down with you. We've to we've to worked you. together on stage in radio plays. You are so good in those radio plays because you do so many characters with such uh, conviction and authenticity. They hire me because it's cheaper. There's one guy to do all these characters. They don't, have to, yeah. you know. But it's great to uh, sit down and share conversation. You're a true Thanks. professional and a great guy. Thanks. Thanks for joining me. Thanks. Good to talk to you. This is Jordan thanking you for listening to On Mic with Jordan Rich, available on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and of course, Android. Appreciate you subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing this podcast if you get a chance. On Mic is produced at Chark Productions in Boston. Until next time, be well so you can do good. <laughs>